Computer, initialize Holosuite. Hi everyone and welcome back to part two of Second Wave Feminism and Popular Culture. Today I will be looking at early liberal feminism and three of my favorite sci-fi heroines, Ellen Ripley, Sarah Connor and Captain Catherine Janeway. Today's episode will be a little bit longer, so I really hope that you enjoy it. So early liberal feminism, which advocates for gender sameness, was second wave feminism's first version of equality and it emerged in the 1960s in America. The heroines from the Alien and Terminator films, which are Ripley and Sarah Connor, and Star Trek Voyager, which is Catherine Janeway, they all reveal how liberal feminism's ideals regarding gender difference and gender sameness are embodied in the second wave power woman. Now the second wave power woman is just the archetype or the term that I use to refer to this specific type of action heroine. Many feminists recognize Betty Friedan's highly influential text, The Feminine Mystique, which is also considered to be one of the pioneering second wave texts as the catalyst for early liberal feminism because she encourages women to pursue careers like men do. Now, if you think about the context that she wrote in 1960s America, she was worried that the average marriage of women in America dropped to 20 by the 1950s, with 14 million American girls being engaged by the age of 17 already. Furthermore, where 47% of college students were women in the 1920s, by the 1950s that statistic, oh my goodness, that statistic dropped to 35%. So Betty Friedan observed that as a result of early marriage and failing to pursue a career even after receiving formal education, most middle-class American women who were confined to the home and raising children eventually started to experience, I quote, the problem that has no name towards the end of the 1950s. It is also termed the housewife syndrome by psychologists of that time the problem that has no name was characterized by feelings of depression, incompleteness, boredom and tiredness with no apparent cause, according to 1960s psychologists. So for Betty Friedan, the epitome of true feminine fulfillment after World War II in America was what she called the highly problematic, cherished and self-perpetuating feminine mystique, which is of course also the title of her book, and this was presented as a healthy, beautiful and educated suburban housewife who is concerned only about her husband, her children, her home and not about her career. And this feminine mystique, mystique was the root of the problem that has no name, according to Betty Friedan. In the previous episode, I mentioned the Emmy Award winning series Mrs. America. And once again, that series really actually portrays this problem quite well. Throughout this series, we see all of the women, even though they are trying to help Phyllis Schlafly, who herself is a housewife, you really see how they struggle to negotiate this balance between being a full-time housewife and also trying to have some political say. 
I also found the scene funny when one of the students at the university sees Phyllis Schlafly disguised because she's studying at law school and they tell her actually you are a feminist because actually what she does throughout the entire series subscribes to Betty Friedan's idea of female empowerment. Now back to the discussion, images of the feminist mystique also saturated various forms of popular culture at the time. Frida notes how the proud and public image of the high school girl going steady, the college girl in love, the suburban housewife with an up-and-coming husband and a station wagon full of children was perpetuated by women's magazines, advertisements, television, film, novels, columns and books by experts on marriage and family, amongst others in the 1950s and the 1960s. These images of pretty housewives beaming over their foaming dishpans, which is her description, further reinforce the ideology that women should not be concerned with the unfeminine problems of the world outside the home, and that the major decisions should be made by men. These types of images not only reinforce sexual difference, which suggests that women and men are fundamentally different, and that's why women are the weaker sex, but it also presented, for Friedan, a stark contrast to the heroine that featured in women's magazines in America two decades earlier. Now, I'm not going to talk about that today, but maybe later. Anyway, at its core, the feminine mystique is a call for women to enter the workforce once more. And not only for women to have jobs, but to have careers like men have. And we see also in Mrs. America this constant struggle between Phyllis Schlafly and her husband, who actually has a career, and how she cannot have a career because she's a woman. So this is exactly the type of thing that Frieden, Frieden called the problem that has no name. And for her, this problem that has no name could only be resolved if women have careers of their own and look for feminine fulfillment, I quote, beyond the domestic realm of raising children and serving their husbands. In the realm of popular culture, films released during the height of feminism's second wave, such as Working Girl and Fatal Attraction, explore emerging career women's struggles to have equal job opportunities while maintaining their femininity and negotiating relationships, marriage and children. Even the Wonder Woman comics underwent a makeover in 1968 and um, I don't know if you've seen what these comics look like but Wonder Woman doesn't wear her Wonder Woman suit at all. She's actually stripped of all her superpowers and she has a career during the day and worked as a detective during the night and these type of comics appeared until 1973. Uh, to be honest I don't think I would read a Wonder Woman comic like that, sounds kind of boring. But even Wonder Woman reflected this change. Two more of Friedan's ideal career women also appeared in 1980s and 1990s, surprisingly in science fiction. So I have observed that Ellen Ripley and Captain Janeway, despite being in outer space, actually both of them have careers, technically, and both leave family behind in order to pursue their careers. In this way, Ripley and Janeway present an antithesis to the suburban housewife with a station wagon full of children from the 1950s that Friedan hated so much. 
Now, just some background on Ellen Ripley, if you're not familiar with her, although I highly recommend watching the Alien movies. There are four that feature Ellen Ripley. It is Alien, released in 1979, Aliens in the 80s, and then Alien Resurrection, which was the last one, and Alien 3, which was the third one. Um, they're all special in their own unique way, although many people say that Alien 3 and Alien Resurrection sucked. Uh, I beg to differ. Um, like Sigourney Weaver once said in an interview, they're all like her children and she loves each of her children in a different way for their own uniqueness. And then the interviewer said, oh, but you know, maybe two children you love less, which is the third one and the fourth one. And she just laughed. Anyway, I thought that was quite funny, but yes, I highly recommend Alien. I was really wowed when I saw Ellen Ripley for the first time. So yes, she appeared for the first time in Alien, and this was actually one of Sigourney Weaver's first movies. She played like a really small role in a movie previously, but Alien was, was Sigourney Weaver's first movie. And um, in an interview, she recounts how she didn't actually know anything about acting, so the director, Ridley Scott, kept telling her to please not look directly into the camera, because she kept looking directly into a camera, which you're not supposed to do when you're an actress, I guess. So, um, yeah, that was also quite funny. I really love Sigourney Weaver, on a side note. Anyway, um, so Alien is still considered to be one of the most influential horror films ever made. As I mentioned earlier, Ripley was one of the first female characters in sci-fi film whose representation departed from the ways in which sci-fi treated women throughout the 20th century. Ripley is the main protagonist of the film and she's also a heroine according to the definition I discussed in the previous episode. So if you haven't listened to that, then uh, please listen to that episode, then you'll know what I'm talking about. In Alien, a cargo spaceship called the Nostromo reacts to a distress call on a passing planet and an alien species, termed a xenomorph, makes its way onto the ship and wipes out the entire crew. Only Ripley and her really sweet cat, Jonesy, manage to escape. There's many memes about that because um, Ripley kind of saves the cat more than she cares about saving the crew. But anyway, I probably would do that as well. <laughs> Ripley then returned in James, Cam James Cameron's um, second Alien movie called Aliens in 1986, where she is recruited as a consultant for a military operation on the planet called LV-426, where the Nostromo first encountered the Xenomorph. And once again, it's only Ripley and a young girl named Newt and her friend Corporal, Corporal Hicks that survived the ordeal, ordeal with the Xenomorph Queen. Um, Aliens is really cool. It's much more like action-based, um, more than a horror movie. So um, a lot of cool action scenes. Ripley is really badass in this one. So I really recommend watching Aliens as well. Also, I think the, the way they made the Queen this was before we had CGI. Uh, the Queen, like, they built everything. It was really quite impressive to see. Anyway, on her journey back to Earth, following the events of Aliens, Ripley crash lands again on a planet where only men live. And this is revealed in Alien 3 that she became impregnated with a xenomorph queen on the ship on the way home. So um, Ripley actually has an alien growing inside of her. So this is a spoiler alert. 
She dives into a pit of fire in order to destroy the growing xenomorph queen inside of her. And then in Alien Resurrection, as the title suggests, she's resurrected 200 years later by a bunch of scientists who want to use the xenomorph for some like military operations. So poor Ripley never gets to rest in peace and um, her story ends in Alien Resurrection. Although there were alien movies after this one, we don't really see Ripley again. So I really hope that one day we get to see another alien movie with Ripley where we can just kind of get some resolution to her story because um, yeah, she she really kind of ended in a really open-ended way. So when Ripley is found, having floated in space for 157 years in stasis after the, the events of Alien, in the beginning of the director's cut of Aliens, it is revealed that she actually had a daughter who died at the age of 66. Now her daughter was never mentioned in Alien, but in Aliens it turns out she had a daughter and obviously because Ripley was in stasis in space for 57 years, she missed her daughter's entire life. So, Amanda was apparently, that's her daughter's name, Amanda was 8 years old when um, Ripley left. And in this way, Ripley really represents Betty Friedan's ideal working mother and career woman because she leaves her family behind to go and pursue her job. So there was this Alien Isolation animated YouTube series. Now, Alien Isolation is an alien video game that was released in 2015 that follows the story of Amanda Ripley, Ellen Ripley's daughter. And again, this is a spoiler alert. By the end of the video game, she finds the voice recording that Ripley left to her um, when Ripley, right before Ripley went into stasis at the end of Alien. So that's a really cute Easter egg. And um, it was even voiced by Sigourney Weaver, which was a really nice touch. So they turned that video game into an animated YouTube series. You can find it in on YouTube. The account's name is Alien Anthology. You can watch the entire series there. It was criticized quite a lot because the animation is terrible, but I liked it because it elaborates more on Ripley's daughter's journey. So it's quite funny that throughout this entire YouTube series, Amanda Ripley keeps saying like, ah, my mother with my mother it was always work first and she always put me second and put family second. So once again, we see that Ripley was really quite dedicated to her career. Now the other character, Captain Janeway, she also epitomizes the antithesis of the housewife whose only dream was to be a perfect wife and a mother by also abandoning any prospects of family in order to pursue her career as a Starfleet officer. In 1995, the Star Trek series that had been running with male captains at the helm since 1966 finally saw its first female captain on the bridge of the starship Voyager which was Captain Catherine Janeway, played by Kate Mulgrew. Now, I'll talk more about Kate Mulgrew in a later episode because I was fortunate enough to meet her on Zoom for an hour. But yeah, you can look forward to that. I'm not going to talk about that now. So since there's a total of 172 Voyager episodes, there's a really wide range of Janeway's characteristics that are explored throughout the series. So this is one of them. 
Now again, some background on Captain Janeway and Star Trek Voyager. So in Star Trek Voyager, it's currently showing on Netflix. I highly recommend it. It's really good old Star Trek um, with really bad CGI and all of that, but it's really cool and profound. And I think I've watched Voyager. I'm on my third watch now. <laughs> I've almost watched all seven series three times. It's really great. Um, so Captain Janeway and her crew become stranded in the Delta Quadrant, which is 75,000 light years away from Earth, which then would mean that it would take them 75 years to get back home to Earth at warp speed. So Janeway's task is to bring her crew back home while facing numerous unpredictable space anomalies on the really dangerous 75-year journey home. And actually... In the end, um, Admiral, this is a spoiler again, sorry, uh, Admiral Janeway goes back in time to bring Voyager back earlier. So in the end, actually, Voyager takes 23 years to get back. And then in the altered timeline, uh, it takes Voyager seven years. There was this meme because Captain Janeway is just such a great, strong character where they're like, yeah, Captain Janeway brings her crew home and then goes back in time to do it better the second time. Like, that's how great she is. So uh, Captain Janeway is really one of my favorite women on screen. Similar to Ripley, who leaves her daughter behind to pursue her career in space, Captain Janeway also leaves her fiancé behind, his name is Mark, in order to become the captain of Voyager. In the first Voyager episode, it is also clear that she's way more preoccupied with her work than she is with Mark and their pregnant dog. Uh, in the video call, Mark is all like, oh, when are you leaving? When will we be back? And then she's like, uh, yeah, as soon as I approve these systems reports. And then he's like, okay, whatever, I'm gonna leave because obviously your work's way more important for you. So for Janeway, her primary concern is not her husband and her children and her home, but it's really her Starfleet career. And at the end, she actually gives her entire life to bring Boy Voyager back home safely, which I think is really amazing. Also in um, episode, I'm not sure what the number episode is, in season four, the episode's name is Hunters. After four years in the Delta Quadrant, it is revealed that Mark, who for Janeway presents a promise of future domesticity, gave her up for dead and married a co-worker. So um, yeah, shame, poor Janeway. <laughs> and actually she remains alone throughout the entire series, but that's also something I'll touch on again later. Anyway, in all of these ways, we can see that Captain Janeway gives up any future possibilities of family for her career. It is finally revealed in Voyager's last episode called Endgame, that Janeway, who is approximately 70 years old in this episode, was promoted to Admiral, and that actually even after Voyager came back 23 years later in the original timeline, she didn't pursue her family, family life, or try to find her husband or anything like that, but she rather made it her life's mission to bring Voyager back earlier. So yeah, really commendable character for my, in my opinion. So clearly for both of these heroines, whether they really chose it or not, their work takes priority over personal commitments. They also present a stark contrast to the feminine mystique and the housewife who is confined to the home and makes it her life's goal to get married and have a husband and children 
which freedom describes and abhors. By having their own careers, Ripley and Janeway also display one of liberal feminism's key definitions of androgyny. So this is the second part of discussion that we're going into now, androgyny. Now, what is the definition of androgyny? So one of the, there's many definitions for this really uh, wide term, but the most widely used definition is an alliance between the good qualities of each sex. However, some theorists have elaborated on that in definition to include in equality in terms of women's participation in all social and economic structures as well. So this liberal feminist view stipulates that a woman should not be treated differently based on her sex alone and that there should be equity, equality among the sexes based on opportunity. Betty Friedan also encourages the sexual sameness view as images of the feminine mystique that perpetuates sexual difference implicitly suggest that women should engage in and are good at doing domestic tasks such as baking their own bread and sewing their children's clothes because they belong to the category women while only men should make the major decisions. The fundamental characteristic of liberal feminists is that they want to advance women to what is conventionally regarded as equality with men within the various hierarchically ordered groups, as is reflected in the status of Captain Janeway as the captain of a Starfleet starship, which was a prestige that was only reserved for white males up until 1995. Janeway's explicit of embrace of androgyny is alluded to in the episode Caretaker, when Ensign Kim addresses her as Sir. Janeway then responds saying, Ensign, despite Starfleet protocol, I don't like being addressed as Sir. And then he's like, oh, I mean, sorry, I mean ma'am. And then she says, ma'am is acceptable in a crunch, but I prefer captain. So for Janeway, we can see that she wants to be treated as a captain, whether she's male or female, which reflects liberal feminism's idea of gender equality. Now, a decade before Betty Friedan wrote The Feminine Mystique, there was another woman writing in France, Simone de Beauvoir. You might have heard her name before if you study feminism. She also published another seminal book about women. So although de Beauvoir is not explicitly categorized as early liberal feminist, many of her arguments, such as her call for women to take the position of the subject, which she contends men have claimed exclusively for themselves throughout history, also perpetuates an andro androgynous or early liberal agenda. Her text was called The Second Sex. And in that book, she elaborates on what androgyny could, be, could mean by tracing the entire history of women's, I quote, enslavement by men, ranging from biology to myths about femininity, what she calls the eternal feminine to religion. Now, de Beauvoir's eternal feminine, I would say is very similar to Betty Friedan's feminine mystique. It's kind of talking about the same thing. For de Beauvoir, religion, popular culture and literature have been constructed exclusively by men and women have over centuries internalized the myth of the eternal feminine that men imposed on them. The eternal feminine, like the feminine mystique, 
suggests that women are good at certain things like cooking and sewing and cleaning because they are women. Obviously there's a much broader explanation, but I'll maybe cover that in a later episode. De Beauvoir also shows how women in the late 1940s still lacked equality with men in terms of legal status, economics, education, in all of those realms despite the efforts of the first wave feminists. And she therefore also advocates that women should be men's equals in all these spheres in order to be truly liberated. Most tellingly, de Beauvoir says that if women were raised with the same demands and honors, the same severity and freedom as her brothers, taking part in the same studies and games, promised the same future, surrounded by women and men who are unambiguously equal to her from the beginning, their situation will be vastly improved and many of the problems between the sexes, such as the castration complex, will be profoundly modified. The castration complex is a Freudian notion, which also I'm not going to elaborate on now, uh, but feel free to read up on that if you like. So de Beauvoir continues. She says that mother and father would also enjoy equal matrimonial and material responsibility for a child, especially for a girl child, who would be raised in an androgynous world around her and not in an exclusively masculine world. As a consequence, a woman would be able to prove her worth in work and sports, actively rivaling boys, which is something that is not seen enough for de Beauvoir in her society. Now, I'm not sure if I mentioned this in the previous episode, but actually um, women in the first wave, during the first wave in the early 1900s and late 1800s actually did not have custody rights over their children as well. There's this movie called Suffragette it's got some really great actresses in it, uh, Helena Bonham Carter and Meryl Streep. If you're interested in finding out more about first wave feminism and what that's all about, that movie really shows a very good summary of what happened during the first waves. And you'll see in that movie that actually even if your husband cheated on you and or he beat you and you wanted to divorce him, uh, first of all, you can't divorce him. And second of all, you're not going to get the child because of these types of rights. So even in the 1940s for Simone de Beauvoir, this was actually still a problem. So although this vision that de Beauvoir had seems somewhat narrow and idealistic, her specific ideas of, ideas of androgyny and gender sameness are actually to some extent manifested in the representations of Ellen Ripley, Catherine Janeway and Sarah Connor. Sexual sameness is first embraced by these three heroines in their display of toughness, to which Sherry Inns, she's a, a theorist on uh, female masculinity, she says toughness are two things. So first, toughness refers to the capacity of a hero to perform great physical feats with his physical endurance. I'm saying his because toughness is something that's only been associated with masculine heroes. Um, so to perform great physical feats with his physical endurance, his sturdiness and ability to overcome physical fatigue. And second, it refers to the hero's intellectual or moral endurance steadfastness, persistence, and the ability to resist influence. 
So as this theorist points out, these characteristics of toughness have mythically become associated with male heroes, such as Captain James Kirk from Star Trek the original series, even Bruce Wayne, who is Batman, Rambo, and the T-800, the Terminator, all of these masculine and male heroes have these characteristics of toughness. So Ellen Ripley actually is also, in the sense of both of these definitions, tough. So this one theorist called George Faithful notes that Ripley displays selfless courage and technical prowess and further recalls how she's cool, resourceful, courageous, and she's able to save herself without the assistance of a man. For example, in Alien, Ripley strictly adheres to the quarantine, quarantine protocol and refuses to let Kane, who has a face hugger on his face. Now, the face hugger is when the, the alien gets stuck to your face and then it kind of lays an egg in your stomach through your throat. It's really gross. So Kane comes in and he has a face hugger on his face and all the male members, they're like, oh, Ripley, let us in, open the door to let us into the ship. And then Ripley is really calmly, she's like, no, I cannot do that. Um, we need to follow quarantine protocol. There's a famous uh, line that she says, and um, I saw many memes about it last year because of the pandemic. But Ripley says, if we break quarantine, we will all die. <laughs> and um, she's really calm in this entire situation. And she also shows her rank. She's like, no, I am third officer. I am in charge when... The captain and the first officer are off the ship, so um, I'm saying no, you're not going to come in. And then one of the other male members of the crew, who's actually a robot, then lets them in and that's where things start going south. <laughs> so we all should have listened to Ripley. But anyway, here it becomes evident that she really supports a position of equal rights for men and women by also demonstrating her rank within the hierarchy. She's saying that I'm not going to open because I'm a woman or I don't need to um, listen to you because I'm a woman. This is the protocol and this is what we need to do. But anyway, the men don't listen to her and they just do whatever they want. And because of that, everyone dies. Anyway, so in Aliens, Ripley especially also displays physical toughness in terms of the definition I explained earlier. She shows not only physical endurance when she battles the Xenomorph Queen in Aliens, which is a really cool fighting scene, but she's fully competent with an elaborate machine gun slash flamethrower that she kind of constructs herself, as well as the technicalities of the Nostromo. In Alien, she possesses the physical strength and the technical knowledge to successfully operate a cargo lifter. Sorry, that was in Aliens. And then in Alien, she effect effectively initiates the self-destruct sequence. Um, and these are only really just a few examples. If you, if you watch the movies, you'll totally understand what I'm talking about. Now, another famous theorist named Carol Clover shows in a really compelling analysis that Ripley also displayed the most recent, at that time, <laughs> not now, uh, this was in the 80s, the most recent version of the final girl in horror film which is a potentially, potentially feminist female trope. <clears throat> now, I don't know if you've watched a lot of horror movies, but in horror movies, the final girl is usually the girl that is kind of tomboyish and kind of 
um, boyish and androgynous and she's the one that makes it out in the end. I don't watch a lot of horror because it freaks me out but you'll see that in many of the famous horror movies, I think Texas Chainsaw Massacre is one of them, there is always the girl that in the end kills the killer and then she's the only one that survived. I remember also a movie called Quarantine, uh, it was quite old. Um, in that movie too, there's one girl who makes it out alive and who survives the entire thing. So that is the final girl. And this reading is a very seminal reading on this, Carol Clover's book. Uh, maybe I will put the name of the book in the, in the description so that you can see uh, what it is if you want to read up on it. So... Yes, the final girl, like Ellen Ripley, is intelligent, watchful, level-headed, and also the narrative's undisputed hero. And in contrast to the various sci-fi heroines in film and comics that came before Ripley, uh, like I explained in the previous episode, Ripley's, and I quote, wrestling with the male gaze is not punished, but rewarded with being the only survivor in the horror film. So like I said, the final girl is also described as boyish and not fully feminine and she sometimes even has a unisex name. We see this in Ripley too. Actually, no one in the film ever calls her Ellen except when uh, she tells her name to Corporal Hicks because she kind of likes him. She's like, oh yeah, my name's Ellen. And he's like, okay, come back Ellen and then never says that ever again. But Everyone refers to her as Ripley throughout, and Ripley is actually a male name, or a more like a unisex name. So that is another feature of the final girl. In these ways, Ripley's display of toughness and the demonstration of her rank in the incident with the facehugger and Kane, as well as her embodiment of all the subversive aspects of the final girl, it shows her embrace of Simone de Beauvoir's notion that women can actively rival boys in all instances. Now here I would also like to briefly talk about Terminator and Sarah Connor because she's even tougher than Ripley. Now this was also actually directed by James Cameron two years before Aliens was The Terminator and it came out in 1984 and then it was followed by Terminator 2 Judgment Day in 1991. And then there's a new one out now, Terminator Dark Fate, which was released in 2019, which also features uh, the same actress Linda Hamilton in the role of Sarah Connor, although um, she's quite a bit older now, obviously. So. In academia and um, usually on internet sites too, you will often see that Ripley and Connor also are actually discussed together or alongside each other. So in The Terminator, Sarah Connor, who is the future mother of John Connor, who is the person that is supposed to save humanity from a machine-led apocalypse, is first represented as a young waitress who is presumably, and I quote, a stereotype of the disempowered female. In the movie, Kyle Reese travels back in time to protect Sarah Connor from a killing machine which is called the Terminator and by the end of the film she's pregnant with John Connor who is actually then Kyle Reese's son. Yeah, the timelines and time travel in this movie is completely wacky. <laughs> I actually don't know how, um, how that works but anyway, that is how it is in the movie. 
Um, in Terminator 2, we see a slightly different version of Sarah Connor, and she kind of went, underwent this radical transformation between the Terminator and Terminator 2. And we don't actually see that that transformation happening. In contrast to Aliens, we really see Ripley Ripley transform into the character that she becomes throughout the four movies, but Sarah Connor, we never see her transformation. We just see in Terminator 2, suddenly there's this really tough and strong and really buff uh, Sarah Connor that is completely different from the one we saw in the first Terminator. So in Terminator 2, she's in a mental asylum because she keeps saying that the world is going to end and everyone thinks she's crazy. She has her son taken away from her and this time it is not the Terminator that protects her but actually she teams up with another Terminator to protect her son who also came back again from the future to kill John Connor. Similar to Ellen Ripley, in Terminator 2, Sarah Connor also demonstrates traditional male heroic qualities such as strength, stamina, and determination, but she is way more overt in her display of masculinity. Now, this is a description of Sarah Connor by George Faithful that I would just like to read. He says that by Terminator 2, Connor had become a violent survivalist in mind, body, and spirit, Actor Linda Hamilton portrayed a woman now utterly given over to her mission. With ruthless efficiency, she acquired the hardware and skills that she, her son, and the remnant of humanity would need to survive the machine-dominated future. She has molded herself into a human equivalent of a Terminator, eschewing emotion, honing her physique, and developing lethal potential. Sarah Connor in Terminator 2 is really badass, <laughs> to summarize it. She is competent in a variety of weapons, from knives to pistols to machine guns to grenades, also rivaling the boys in the Simone de Beauvoir's terms. She also rivals even the deadly Terminator, which is played by the bodybuilder Arnold Schwarzenegger himself. And uh, yeah, of course, you know his famous line, I'll be back. I think it was so funny in Terminator Dark Fate when um, she kind of drops a bomb and another Terminator and then she tells them, I'll be back. And I was like, ah, my God, she did the thing where she said, I'll be back. Um, yeah, that was pretty funny. Uh, similar to Ellen Ripley, also similar to Ellen Ripley, who ultimately sacrifices herself in order to save humankind from the Xenomorphs. Sarah Connor is also really ruthless in her pursuit of her mission as the killer of Terminators. Now, Captain Janeway is not often confronted with situations that require physical strength, but she is, like a Starfleet as a Starfleet captain, frequently placed in the position to make reasonable, logical, and diplomatic decisions. Now, of course, Janeway is proficient with a phaser rifle, and one of my favorite Voyager episodes is called Macrocosm, where Janeway fights these uh, really also kind of like alien-like creatures that come onto her ship, and she fights them with the phaser rifle. Um, they call it Sarah Connor Janeway, because in that episode we also see 
Kate Mulgrew's uh, lovely muscular arms and uh, Janeway's pretty badass in that episode too. So if you want to see Janeway in action, I suggest that episode. I think it's in season two or three of Star Trek Voyager. Yes, anyway, uh, characteristics that the two male captains that came before Janeway, which was Captain Kirk and Captain Picard, displayed, such as reason, strength and power, as well as leadership, all of these qualities are exhibited in Janeway, who leads, guides and advises and commands her crew. Janeway is also an incorruptible leader throughout the series, who is absolute in the application of Starfleet principles, to the point where she actually strands Voyager and its crew 75,000 light years away from home in order just to adhere to these principles. Janeway also commonly makes statements in which she, she refuses to sacrifice power and force for a perhaps more feminine precision, such as her statement about not delicately maneuvering a spacecraft, but rather punching your way through in the episode Parallax. In these ways, the herons discussed here, they embody de Beauvoir's ideals of an androgynous society and a display of toughness, as Sherry Inns also articulates in terms of physical and personal capacities. So clearly we can see that for second wave liberal feminism, the strategy to achieve gender equality is for women to be the same as men. For de Beauvoir, as it is for Betty Friedan, Shedding one's femininity and dissolving the feminine mystique or the eternal feminine in order to attain these goals is not necessarily a large price to pay either. Androgyny and equality, in the ways argued by the liberal feminists, are not only reflected in these heroines' social positions and their personalities, like I explained, but also in the way that they look. First of all, we see androgyny displayed in the terms of these heroines' clothing or their outfits. In Alien and Aliens, Ripley wears a loose-fitting boiler suit that does not emphasize her figure, but rather it is practical and similar to the clothing the other male members on the crew also wear. And actually, Sigourney Weaver herself, uh, her body lacks the established markers of femininity in popular culture, because she's quite flat-chested, um, she doesn't have like that thin waist, that uh, hourglass shape uh, that we see in characters like Princess Leia and Wonder Woman that I discussed in the previous episode. In Alien 3, Ripley is seen in a military jacket and baggy pants, and she becomes almost indistinguishable from the male prisoners on Fiorina 161, who wear similar clothing. Sarah Connor is also dressed in a tank top and baggy military-style pants throughout Terminator 2. And although her tank top is a bit more revealing than Ripley's bodysuit, its purpose is not to draw attention to her chest or her breasts, but rather to her muscular arms. If you've seen any pictures of Linda Hamilton in that movie or if you've watched the movie, her arms look really great. They're really muscular and... Uh, Definitely the purpose of the tank top is to for us to look at those really muscular arms. In Terminator Dark Fate, Sarah Connor wears a militarized outfit similar to her clothing in Terminator 2, but with a t-shirt instead of a tank top. 
So Captain Janeway as well, although she appears in her nightdress or a few other dresses on a few occasions throughout the series, she's most of the time in all 172 of the Voyager episodes in her unisex Starfleet uniform. Janeway also wears an unrevealing loose-fitting outfit that, like Ripley's boiler suit, does not draw any attention to her figure, but rather hides any markers of femininity that could be present. Now, this is uh, on a side note, or I'll quickly digress into another discussion, but in Star Trek, female characters' clothing has been a contested issue since the show's inception in the 1960s. Like I explained in the previous episode, Lieutenant Uhura, like all the female crew members aboard the Enterprise, absurdly wears this short dress with a no low le neckline and go-go boots, even though she's a senior officer on a starship. It is only later in, in the Star Trek series such as Deep Space Nine and The Next Generation, and especially in Star Trek Voyager, that women start to wear the same clothing as that of the male crew members which reflects liberal feminism's idea that in terms of style too, women emancipate themselves by turning somewhat into men. Continuing with the discussion of dress in Star Trek, despite the sexualization of the captain and the crew's uniforms in Star Trek Voyager, in all the series, there's always one female crew member who wears a tight jumpsuit that emphasizes her body instead of the more androgynous uniform. In Star Trek Voyager, it is initially Kes, the Ocampan who Janeway rescues, who does not wear the standard Starfleet uniform. And when Kes leaves Voyager, the Borg, who Janeway also saves, Seven of Nine, takes her place as the non-uniform crew member. I'll definitely talk about Seven of Nine's outfit in much more detail in a later episode, but these out characters, and especially Seven of Nine, they do not wear the jumpsuits for practical reasons, but it is simply meant to make Star Trek sell to its predominantly male audience. But interestingly, uh, what I observed is that when you put Janeway, who is so androgynous and who wears the unisex Starfleet uniform, next to Seven of Nine, who's feminine features are emphasized, actually Janeway's androgyny is reinforced through that. While Janeway may still have been read as a feminine captain for the first four seasons of Voyager, in terms of her physical appearance, appearance at least, compared to Seven of Nine, it becomes more strikingly apparent that Janeway is actually more androgynous than she is feminine. In the beginning of the series, Janeway's hair is also much longer, but then when Seven of Nine joins, her hair becomes shorter and shorter, so Captain Janeway also becomes more androgynous as the series progresses. In an interview in 1995, Kate Mulgrew, who, play, who played Captain Janeway, she actually recalled how directors did not know what to do with Janeway's hair, and that producers' concern with her hair revealed a lot about their nervousness of having a female captain in the captain's chair. And then, like I said, the longer Voyager is stranded in the Delta Quadrant, the shorter Janeway's hair becomes. So because long hair is a signifier of femininity, conventionally or traditionally speaking, Janeway's shorter hair marks her androgyny. 
especially in episodes where Janeway is required to be especially tough, her hair is much shorter, such as the two-part episode Year of Hell, which is one of my favorite episodes, where Voyager is under constant attack. The connection between Janeway's hair and her masculinity is also even more apparent in the episode Living Witness, where an alien race recreates a hologram version of Janeway based on their historical records 900 years after Voyager entered the Delta Quadrant. So this is the worship version of Janeway uh, in more uh, colloquial terms or informal discussions of Janeway. They also call it the BDSM version of Janeway. But here she has very short hair and she's brutal, violent and quick to engage in battle. So we can see that when their hair becomes shorter, it means they become more masculine. So their hair, or these characters' hair at least, is directly related to their masculinity and their femininity. And we see exactly the same thing happen with Ellen Ripley as well. Ripley's features are not only masculine, with Sigourney Weaver's straight nose and well-defined jawline, and her tall, boyish and thin body, but she also has short hair that becomes progressively shorter from Alien to Alien 3, like that of Captain Janeway from Season 4 to Season 7 of Star Trek Voyager. Actually, if you've watched Alien 3, Ripley has no hair in that one. Um, she's completely bald. Uh, they shaved their hair off apparently because she has lice. So I'm not quite sure why they did that in Alien 3, but yeah, Ripley is like skinhead in Alien 3. And that makes her almost completely indistinguishable from the other male inmates on the planet. It is significant that Ripley and Janeway's hair undergo a progression from long to short, because the longer they are in space and separated from Earth, which is traditionally considered the domain of women or conventionally associated with women, after all we call it Mother Earth, the less they conform to conventional notions of femininity. Like Janeway too, Ripley is also juxtaposed with a stereotypically more feminine character, which is Navigation Officer Lambert in Alien, who reinforces Ripley's masculinity by acting as the binary opposite of Ripley. So some theorists have noted that Lambert is over-emotional and explicitly feminine in her behavior, and we can see this in her really hysterical reaction to Dallas's violent death and her panic after realizing that the xenomorph is roaming the ship, in contrast to Ripley, who remains calm and offers reasonable solutions. Also, Lambert is curvier and shorter than Ripley, and she wears a more revealing outfit. She also has blonde hair and blue eyes, in contrast to Ripley's dark hair and brown eyes. In Alien Resurrection, the android Annelie Cole has a similar function as that of Lambert, although the relationship between those two are a bit more ambiguous and uh, possibly queer, which you can look forward to in the next episode. Um, my friend sent me a, a picture and actually it says that canonically Lambert is a transgender. Now, I really didn't know that, so that really kind of uh, throws my argument on its head a little bit, so I will look into that. But anyway, at least uh, for the unobservant view viewer like me, 
um, Lambert would definitely be considered much more feminine than Ripley. Finally, Sarah Connor, her appearance is also androgynous like that of Ripley and Janeway. She has an athletic and toned body that is capable of wielding the heavy weapons that she uses throughout the film. And her tank top emphasizes her muscular arms that display liberal feminism's denial of sexual difference and support of toughness. And similar to Ripley and Janeway, she has short hair by the end of Terminator 1 and in the 2019 Terminator film Dark Fate. Shots in Terminator 2 also focus on Sarah Connor's muscular arms, such as the iconic opening scene that introduces her in the beginning of the film, where she's shown doing pull-ups in her prison cell, which is really difficult to do if you've ever tried to do pull-ups. So that means she's really strong. <laughs> so for liberal feminists, androgyny in relation to scientific inquiry is the final important issue that I'll discuss today. Liberal feminists want women to gain respectability in the eyes of the male power structure in the Academy of Science. To be equal to men in the Academy to the point where the gender of the scientist is irrelevant. Now for these heroines, we see that equality within the sciences seems to be just as important as it is to liberal feminists as they mostly appear in the science fiction genre, like Ellen Ripley and Captain Janeway and Dana Scully from The X-Files is also a good example. All of them are good scientists or even better scientists than their male counterparts are. Janeway also often displays her superior scientific ability and in her speech at the end of the pilot episode, she makes it clear that she and her crew are primarily scientists and explorers. Throughout their time in the Delta Quadrant, Janeway often deviates from their course home in order to investigate anomalies in space in the quest for scientific progress and advancement. This has also been the topic of many Janeway jokes because people say that if they just flew straight home, they would not have taken so long. But Janeway just stops at every nebula, at every planet. She just really likes to stop and observe things. And uh, because of that, uh, Voyager takes quite a bit longer to get home. Anyway, although liberal equality feminism made various advances for women in the second half of the 20th century, at the end of the day, this idea of gender sameness ultimately ran into a dead end. And uh, I will conclude with these remarks. Um, some criticism lodged against liberal equality feminism, for example, say that with regards to scientific inquiry, how can women change science if the science gender is irrelevant? They also say that if gender is irrelevant, why should there be changes in existing social and economic structures in the first place? This idea of gender sameness and gender difference, like I also mentioned in the previous episode, is something that's been unresolved for feminists for a long time. And I think um, they're still trying to navigate what, where do we stand and what position we should take in terms of this. But anyway, I'm just uh, posing these questions and um, kind of giving the other side of the argument here. 
Another criticism of early liberal feminism is its false universalism that assumes that all women share the same experiences. So this is also something I'll look at later, but for some radical feminists, liberal feminism simplifies the experiences of a certain group of white middle-class women into one universal female experience because texts like the feminine mystique only focus on the experiences of white affluent married women in America, but supposedly presented as one universal circumstance for all women from all races, social contexts and sexual orientations. This idea of uh, universalism has also been interrogated by third wave feminism and I'll definitely talk about that later again as well. Anyway, these are some of the criticisms lodged against early liberal feminism, but I hope you really enjoyed the discussion on how early liberal feminism is kind of shown in the representations of these heroines that emerged during this context when these type of theories were floating around. And I hope you look forward to the next episode. Please let me know if you have any comments or feedback for me or if there are any characters you would like me to cover specifically and I'll be happy to do that. Thank you for listening and this is the Sci-Fi Feminist signing off. Live long and prosper. Until next time. Bye-bye. This show is brought to you by Hollow Sweet Media. Computer. List other available Holosuite Media programs. Loading Holosuite Preview Program 4. Random Trek Review. A Star Trek Review Podcast. We get kind of that funny little bit where he's got the relationship book, and I guess maybe they're foreshadowing a little bit of, you know, future, you know, hunk <laughs> Odo. <laughs> the, the, like, romance book was hilarious. He had a funny line. I forget what it was exactly now. I didn't write it down. I only read three chapters. Oh, that's it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. That was that was pretty good. And they definitely do this. When they have kind of a heavy, deep episode, they'll sometimes put a little bit of a joke or, or something light off the top. Loading Holosuite Preview Program 4, The Voyages, a Star Trek original, animated, and Kelvin Films podcast full honesty i did find that the scene was seemingly long when they were driving with him and, and scotty to get to the enterprise when they were in their little capsule i felt that that was a very long scene driving around the whole enterprise but find yourself someone in life that looks at you the way kirk looked at the enterprise i mean that was a beautiful moment and i absolutely adored when spock came back onto the enterprise just how everybody on the bridge, like Yuhura and Chekhov and everybody, they just kind of rallied around him. And it was a really warming moment just to see that original core group of people just celebrate him and happy to see him. Computer, deactivate Holosuite.